we just did a sound check and that sounded so much better than over the phone. So yeah, it's, it's good to be back. Well, happy days. Yeah. <laughs> lockdown 5.0 has ended. Yep. And who knows when the next one's going to be, but let's not have, <laughs> let's not think about that. <laughs> well, we we're thinking about you guys up in Sydney, um, who are currently in lockdown. When oh, that's terrible. Recently went through the same things uh, that you guys are going through last year. Yeah. So we had higher numbers when we started, but we didn't have Delta strain and they've got Delta strain. Uh, that's going to make it bad. <laughs> there's, there's light at the end of the tunnel. There yep. is light. Just patience. Preach. Got to preach patience. That's right. Uh, so one of my mates moved back to the UK and everything's just normal. Pretty much most of the population is vaccinated. Business as usual. Like, I cannot wait till we're all vaccinated and this is done. <laughs> yes. Get vaccinated. That's Absolutely. Right. Anyway, t- today, so today we're going to go through performance tip and also a uh, second part of cardiovascular classifications. Uh, and so we'll get cracking in a second. Welcome to Anesthesia Coffee Break. I'm Lahiru. And I'm Stan. And as we mentioned, we're going to go through some cardiovascular classifications, but first a performance tip from myself. So it's my turn to do do a performance tip. And so what I've been really looking at recently is uh, performance coaching. So I'm trying to set up um, some coaching resources uh, for for our first part and second part candidates. And um, so one of the people that came up was this performance psychologist. And so I've just started reading reading her book um, and it's, it's... I think it's called How to Ace Your Medical Exams. And what's interesting about that is that it really talks about having a very structured approach to your study, so not too much variation. Um, So essentially what they say is that you've got to follow your body's natural rhythm. So your cortisol goes up as you you, you start the day. And that's a really good time. That's when you're awake. That's a really good, good time for knowledge, retention, and memory. So, if you, so what this person is saying is that you've, your format should be to study, you know, for three to four hours in the morning, say on the weekend, uh, but then stop at midday. So start, you know, at eight or so, stop at midday, and then the afternoon is for your social time. So you try to get your work work life balance in the afternoon. When generally speaking, especially after a meal, you feel a lot sleepier. You're a bit more lethargic. And you don't really feel like studying or want to study. And it's far better that you just relax in that time. And then in the evening, you then try to ex- study again. But this time, you're still, you're still a bit tired. You're fatigued after the, de- after, after the day. Uh, but what you're trying to do is you're trying to recall and do more exam-focused practice. So this way, it's trying to mimic the exam conditions. That The fact that you will be tired during the exam, you will be stressed, you might be nervous, you might be anxious. Uh, and this will be testing yourself in an, yeah, in a situation where that's actually happening. I mean, those are very good tips. And I think one of the challenges um, with that, I, sort of that idea of having that structure, because we all know that structure works, mm. uh, you know, having good habits and that consistency has been proven to give you success, not only in this exam, but in life as well. But I think one of the challenges that we have as trainees going through, and even as consultants also, is that we work um, as shift workers. And I think one of the challenges that I've, um, or oh, sorry, that you know, we've sort of discussed with trainees is that as you sort of do shift work and you're studying for this exam, those ideas make it really challenging because you know, after a night shift, it's very hard to study in the morning, isn't it? And your, oh, yeah. your cortisol is out of whack. Um, and then after that, you know, you've got long shifts, half shifts. It's like, like, what do you think are some of the strategies around that? Yeah, so, I mean, one of the good things, when you're training, the majority of the of your hours in some hospitals are 
from midday till the evening. So that actually does leave you with some time in the morning to study. So that that's good. Um, if you're doing a day shift, there's always the ability to wake up you know, just one hour early. And I often what's said is one hour in the morning is is worth three hours at night. So if you can somehow motivate yourself to, you know, maybe you can meet up with a friend, you can say, hey, we're going to test each other at work. We're going to get to work early and meet up, have a coffee, you know, reward ourselves and just sit down and get stuff done. I think that's a strategy if you've got a day shift, you know, starting at 7.30 or 8. But yeah, I think the night shifts are really difficult, really difficult. Because let's say you've got a really busy night. You're just going to get home and sleep and your, yeah, your cortisol's all out of whack. And I think a lot of what I do, what I did on night shifts was, if I could during the shift I'd study, but also I'd do things that needed as little attention as possible. So maybe I was trying to memorize tables or just write out some tables or do MCQs. So during the, hopefully the rare, not the rare occasions, but the night work shift rosters, I would then just do MCQs rather than the active recall type stuff. I think that's really important. um, What you sort of say in terms of what you sort of do during working hours is, is sort of the additional stuff. I think one of the mistakes that trainees make is that they think they can they can complete set tasks during work time. So, you know, they think that, oh, you know, I've, I've got a night shift. I'll be able to do, you know, these SAQs or learn these objectives. But what they, what they sort of fail to recognize is that sometimes it's going to be a busy night shift. And I think that disappointment of not being able to complete that task really sets them back. And I think what you sort of say is important is that, you know, you use that time as bonus time to go through, you know, things that, don't, don't sort of require that much structure, but, you know, like, as you said, MCQs or just a little um, go through your categorization tables, which we're going to go through. Oh, yeah, that's just, right. just, you know, little things just to sort of remind you. And that way, you know, you, you feel like you've actually completed something uh, during the night. And the thing is, at the end of the day, if it's been a busy night, no big loss. Yeah. But yeah. at least, you know, if you've had a bit of time and, um, you know, you've been able to sort of go through that, that's fantastic. So I think that's a really good tip, La. Yeah, no, exactly. Bonus time, but not confirm study time as part of your test. Right, like yeah. <laughs> and and I think the other thing about night shift is that know that it's it's a temporal thing. You know, we're not we're not on nights forever no. and we don't do these evening shifts forever. So I think, you know, having that idea of that structure should be the majority of how you plan your whole um, study timetable, but suddenly have that flexibility in there for when things are gonna change in terms of, you know, your night or evening shifts which are going to be long. But as soon as you can, you know, revert back to that, to those good habits, um, which you talked about. And, yeah. and I think that will sort of lead you to success. Hopefully cross your fingers. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's right. great. So we're going to lead in now to the second part of your cardiovascular categorizations. And I think yeah. this has been a really popular podcast. I think we've had a lot of uh, positive feedback with, you know, what, what you've done last. So, um, we're going to continue on with that. Yeah, so obviously not everything leads itself well to categorizing, but I thought I'd just cover two more things. So compensation from super understanding and the body's, I guess, reaction to the loss of one liter of blood. And so again, I'm not going to go through too much detail in this, but just show that you know, if you have an overall structure, it's easy to attach knowledge and facts to, to this. So I've pretty much said here, compensation can be global or it can be local. So the global kind of compensation are the baroreceptor reflexes, atrial stretch responses, and then venous flow things, um, as well as various microcirculation changes. And then local changes are cerebral autoregulation. But essentially, every part of the body has certain types of autoregulation, myogenic autoregulation, as well as metabolic autoregulation and increased O2 extraction. So just to recap that, that was global effects and then local effects, global being the baroreceptor response, atrial stretch responses, venous flow responses, and then local 
being the autoregulation responses and increase O2 extraction. So just to go through a bit of that in just a little bit more detail, again, you'll, you'll, you'll have to know a lot of detail for this in your exam, but this is just to cover it in a broad sense. Your baroreceptors will obviously see a reduction in the mean arterial pressure, and that's sensed. They then decrease their rate of firing, which results in an increase in sympathetic nervous system discharge and a decreased parasympathetic nervous discharge. So this, you can obviously think what this causes, increased heart rate increased myocardial contractility um, and then you know peripheral vasoconstriction to increase your venous return as well so that vena constriction increases your systematic systematic resistance sorry your systemic resistance but also your vena constriction to increase your venous return now your atrial stretch, stretch receptors they over, over probably a more extended period of time decreased blood volume will be sensed by these cardiopulmonary low pressure receptors uh, and as decreased stretch and decreased firing of these alpha and beta receptors will stimulate then a lot of hormones, so angiotensin, aldosterone, and ADH. And these all will increase the effects of sodium reabsorption, water reabsorption, and restoration of blood volume over a longer period of time. And they might have some local, you know, local changes in the sense that angi- angiotensin 2 might have some vasoconstrictive properties as well. Um, and also increased sympathetic nervous activity on the kidney also causes vasoconstriction, decreased GFR, decreased urine flow. So that's atrial stretch receptors. Now we think about venous flow, and these are easy to categorize, really, because you've got your skeletal muscle pumps, like your cilial pump, and that just improves the amount of venous return going back to your central compartment. There's valves throughout the venous system, and that prevents backflow. And then as you breathe, you've got the thoracic pump. So, you know, imagine breathing, you've got this negative intrathoracic pressure that then increases the amount of venous return that will they'll move up to the chest. So that's your you know, more global factors. And then you've got your local factors, you know, so cerebral autoregulation. And to go into a little bit of detail about that. So local cerebral autoregulation or compensation takes longer than the baroreceptor response. So really, it, you know, it helps to maintain blood flow with changes in the cerebral vascular resistance. Um, so you might get these, uh, you know, myogenic mechanism that, c- that occurs. So a decrease in blood flow on standing causes this myogenic mechanism. So the cerebral vessels reflexly vasodilate and then decreased flow also reduces transmutal pressure and the radius of the blood vessels in your, in your brain. And this reduces wall, wall tension as well. And this might cause, a, uh, you know, reduces calcium influx, which then causes vasodilation and increase in blood flow back to baseline. So this, this mechanism occurs and, you know, you might have seen that graph where there's a plateau from around a map or a, you know, CPP between 50 and 150 millimeters mercury. That's really good. I, I really like that. And where I think this is important in our practice in anesthesia, we don't really go from supine to standing, but we go from uh, supine to sitting for some for some procedures. Absolutely. So, so you do a lot of shoulders and yeah, that's a very common thing, isn't it? Correct. So I do a lot of shoulders and the shoulder um, surgeries that I sort of assist with, uh, they're all done in the sitting position, 90 degrees. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that, uh, that I do is that prior to them um, sitting up, mm-hmm. uh, so my technique is I do it with sedate, I do it with a block and sedation. Mm-hmm. And what I notice is that if you have the patient sit up while they're sedated, it's very different than sitting up when they're fully asleep. So a, a lot of, um, uh, you know, the technique for this is either done with a full general or you can either do it with, um, as I said, with regional and sedation. If you do it with a full general, 
what I do notice is that all those things you talked about in terms of you know those compensatory responses, they are all ablated. There's so much worse, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. And so if you have a arterial line in, and you sit a patient up from supine to the sitting position up to ninety degrees, you will see them. You will see them dump their blood pressure. Mm-hmm. And all those things you talked about, you know, the baroreceptor reflex, atrial stretch, the venous flow. They're all bladed, so you actually don't see that compensatory response, or you you might actually see it, but it it will be delayed. It's not. It's certainly not as um, quick as when a patient is sedated, and you actually have them sitting up, and they're still they're still conscious, they're still talking to you, and then after that, that's when I sort of get them into a deeper plane of uh, anesthesia. I can imagine that being a, a first part question, quite a quite a practical application of this. You know, you've got a patient in these styles for a shoulder replacement. You go from supine to sitting. What occurs, what should occur, and what is ablated? That could be a pretty good question. Maybe even, I don't know if this would be more second part, but what do you do about it? Mm. Well, it is important <laughs> because, you know, we've had certainly had cases where patients have had cerebral hypoperfusion mm. from these cases um, and have had, uh, you know, catastrophic strokes uh, mm. from that. So this is probably one of the surgeries where it's important to know the physiology and important to know how to manage that. Mm. And you know, it's not to say that, that there's a right or wrong way to do it. It's all, it's all about sort of knowing what occurs with what you're doing. So from supine to standing um, under anesthesia and how to actually manage those things. So because you've lost all those um, uh, sort of compensatory techniques, mm. how are you going to manage that pharmacologically? Yeah, that's right. And I think a lot of us would generally have an art- arterial line in for these general anesthetic cases. And we always put the transducer at the you know level of the head or the, um, let's say, at the mastoid process mm. kind of level. And then, you know, I think we'd all do the a syst- system of volume loading the patient, having ephedrine on hand or potentially atropine to keep the heart rate going because they all become very bradycardic very suddenly yes. if you go up too quickly and having a, a slow aramine infusion just to keep that tone there. But also the surgeon is very aware of this. Like you, if you ever do this shoulder procedure under GA, they'll always go, hey, just uh, let us know when we at, to what angle we can go. And yes. they just slowly put the patient up as you're just, you know, well, just trying to chase, yeah. chase blood pressure. And I think that's a very important point is that if you have a patient on the general anesthesia, you just don't go from supine to sitting up 90 degrees like no. straight away. You, I think that's a really good point. You do it gradually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then sort of um, with your technique for ventilation, mm. do, do you do you do it spot venting or do you do it with a relaxing GA? Almost always a relaxing GA, but uh. definitely I can, you know, there'll be a decent advantage to having this done with um, with a spot vent GA. I think because I don't work with the same surgeon every time. I'm never, I'm never that sure about what how long this operation is going to be. I think I mainly put it in a tube because it's not, not a shared airway, but it's hard to access it. I'd rather it just sit there and work really well but also the fact that uh, it, it could potentially be a long operation and yeah it's just easy to have a controlled airway yeah, yeah. and as i said you know there, there's no right or wrong answer it's just about knowing what the effects are mm. so i think the other important thing is to know um what is the difference between having someone spot vent versus someone having a relaxing ga you mm. now you did sort of mention that you know there might be some advantages with a spot vent ga versus a relaxing ga so just for the audience, what, what would be the issues in terms of the cardiovascular effects um, having someone with a relaxing GA um, during IPPV? Like how, how does that affect the uh, cardiovascular yeah, system? Absolutely. So essentially once you have uh, you know, relaxing generalized, like you're going to have to give positive pressure ventilation. 
And so just, just like we mentioned before, your venous backflow, your venous return is going to be in, going to be assisted by any kind of spontaneous respiration because you've got that thoracic pump, but this just turns upside down as soon as you have positive pressure. So there'll be more flow during expiration than inspiration, which is the opposite of a spont venting patient. I think that's really the major the major problem with this aside from all the other problems of paralysis causing decreased frc and um but yeah potentially other hypoxemic issues but really the i think the main thing for blood pressure is, is that yeah, yeah. Uh, a really good point um and then the next thing you're going to talk about is something that we manage uh occasionally and i'll and i'll say occasionally because it doesn't happen a lot of time but yeah, right. <laughs> what happens when you lose a liter of blood or in fact a significant amount of blood loss yeah, that's right. So this is something that, uh, you know, it's great to it's great to think about this in a first part context. And then, you know, you move on to actually managing this and thinking of it in the sec, in the final exam context where you've really got to address all these things um, to try and manage this in an acute se- in acute setting. But, you, you know, you, you should also be aware that there's longer term effects of this kind of blood loss. And so the way this exam question might be structured is really short term, intermediate term and long term responses. So loss of one liter of blood loss, what is your physiological response or your cardiovascular physiological response? And the way I'd categorize it is basically short term, intermediate term and long term. So in the short term, you've really got your baroreceptor response again. It's your increased sympathetic nervous system, as we mentioned before, increased catecholamines, adrenaline, noradrenaline. You've got to increase peripheral vascular resistance um, as well as increased venoconstriction, vasoconstriction to try and maintain you know, pressure, venous return and perfusion to vital organs. There's also this redistribution of blood away from the cutaneous and splanchnic circulation. So you can definitely get these autotransfusions from some of these various organ beds. I think the spleen can autotransfuse as well as this splanchnic circulation as well as the liver as well and potentially even the lungs. Uh, there's also stimulation of catecholamine release from the adrenal glands, uh, which produces then an increased systemic effect. In addition to that, you know, peripheral sympathetic nervous system effect. So you've got the nerves acting on the vessels, but also you've got adrenaline circulating more, uh, in a in a in a hormonal sense as well. You've also got vasopressin released from projections from the nucleus. Uh, of the solitary tract of the hypothalamus. So increased vasopressin, again, very much a noradrenaline-like substance attached to, I think it's V1 receptors in the vessels to then increase tone. And then finally, stimulation of renin release by the sympathetic stimulation of your kidney uh, due to that low renal perfusion. Uh, this is, these are really a constellation of these kind of sy- systemic uh, hormonal and uh, sympathetic nervous system effects, but you also then have decreased vagal responses as well. In the immediate term, that's where you get more of the hormonal type responses from the kidney. So, you know, imagine renin secretion in response to this causes vagus constriction by angiotensin effects, increases sodium retention, as we mentioned in the previous previous section, by, by aldosterone. Um, vasopressin also, again, attaches V1 receptors, increases water retention by the V2 receptors. So there's a whole bunch of vasopressin effects. And then venous hypertension increase, or decreases atrial natriuretic peptide secretion. Uh, which then causes decreased renal blood flow and decreased urinary and water, so water and sodium excretion. So decreased urinary water and sodium excretion. So really, you've got this net effect of lower urine output and more sodium retention. And you can imagine that you can really try to put all of this into a in a nice little graph showing renin angiotensin angiotensin to aldosterone as a system, as well as your other hormones, vasopressin, um, causing all of their effects. There's in the longer term, really, this is mainly due to EPO. So 
if uh, EPO will then stimulate red, red blood cell production and try to defend the volume state or the overall volume state of the body as well. Uh, so that that really is just a brief summary of the in the immediate or short term effects, the intermediate effects, and then your longer term effects. And that's really good. And um, I think the other important thing to note is that when you do have blood loss, the immediate response to that is from the decrease in extracellular fluid volume. Mm. Because the other thing that um, the body also responds to is osmolality. Mm. And I think, um, you know, as you've noted, it's not, it hasn't changed yet. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what, one of the things that uh, I think that people sort of, sort of um, make a sort of misjudgment on is that, you know, someone with acute blood loss, if you were to check their HB and they haven't been resuscitated enough, your HB is actually going to be... Absolutely normal. Yeah. yeah, very, very normal. So, because remember that it, when you check out HB, it, it's concentration. Mm. So if you haven't actually replaced anything, often you might actually get a HB which looks fairly sort of normal despite having significant blood loss. And it's not until you replace that blood loss with, I mean, if you, if you replace it with, um, without blood products and you replace it with, you know, crystalloid, yes. what you will see is a dilutional effect where your osmolality actually drops. Mm, yeah. Absolutely. Um, and I think the, the other important to note is that even though your body responds to uh, osmolality, it's the, it's actually the pressure or the volume that actually overrides um, osmolality for sh- for cases like shock. Mm-hmm. So I think in in sort of you know short you know sort of low to medium changes, osmolality actually is very well controlled mm-hmm. and um, overrides pressure and pressure and volume. But in periods of shock where the main um, protective mechanism is to man- you know is to maintain cardiac output, the, your baroreceptors or your volume actually overrides osmolality. That's a really good point. Yeah. Um, so, look, I think you know, in terms of you know, blood loss, like what what kind of cases would you see commonly where you'd see like a liter of blood loss happen? Yeah, I think the most common is probably if you have cesarean sections, mm. where one liter of blood loss is not that uncommon. That's still called a PPH. It's called a PPH, isn't yeah, it? But, I know, <laughs> but it seems to happen reasonably commonly, <laughs> un- unfortunately. And, and when we say yeah. commonly, it's not not you know we, we say more commonly than than what we would normally see in sort of other cases. That's right. We're, we're not saying that uh, we're, we're not, not being alarmist. <laughs> <laughs> we're not saying that every single case that you know of, of uh, you know <laughs> that we do ends up in PPH. Yeah, but yeah. we do we do see yeah quite a bit, and I think you'd be we'd, we'd, I'm quite amazed. Like most of the time. Mm. Um, mothers are actually able to compensate very well. Like, wh- what's your experience? Uh, yeah, with that? that's right. I, I think uh, look, again, definitely, definitely, let us know where we're talking out of the scope of what you, you guys believe. But w- if we see one liter blood loss that's controlled, uh, you know, every, everything looks fine. It's not about to progress to you know worsening tone, etc. I don't think we worry that that much about it. The pregnant female already has a lot of ability. Let's say they're of normal size, and one liter is not a drastic amount of their volume, but is literally they've got a five liter circulating volume. One liter isn't is really well defended. You know, you've already got the decreased HB and increased blood volume itself of a, a pregnant woman, and yeah, there's a lot of things in place that allow this to be this volume to be defended really well, uh, especially when that problem is now is now solved. There's no ongoing bleeding. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, they, they get that auto-transfusion when, they're, uh, when the uterus contracts after the baby comes out. And mm. I, I think... Oh, that's, of course, yeah. yeah. I think most mothers actually um, tolerate uh, that really well. 
That's, uh, that sounds pretty good. So that's pretty much all we really wanted to cover for this one. Yeah. Uh, so we've just gone, you know, gone through just a framework for soup, you know, compensation of the body from supine to standing, and also what occurs with the loss of one liter of blood. So yeah, I hope that was helpful. Yeah, definitely write into us if um, you've got any questions about that at lahirinstan at gmail.com. <laughs> and uh, so next time we'll go through a few renal categorization things. Thanks for listening and join us again next time. <laughs>